What a movie I watched last night taught me about redemption. And then, what is the key to not staying angry? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. We made it to the end of the week. Hopefully you got a great weekend planned ahead of you. Or maybe you're listening to us on the podcast and you're already in the middle of your weekend. You're doing some yard work or something around the house. However it is that you are listening, we are glad that you are joining us today. We've had a great week. If you've missed any of our shows this week, I'd encourage you to go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Last night, uh, I was sitting at home. Uh, you know, I, I tend to do my job. I tend to have a lot of meetings at night or stuff going on in the evening. So when there's nothing, I just love it. And I got to be honest, I was just vegging out. I was like, but the basketball wasn't back on yet. There was some college games and, you know, football season's over. Baseball season hasn't started. So I tend to watch sports, but there was kind of this void. Now, I do have to admit one of the things I've been watching lately. This is going to this is going to date me. This is going to age me a little bit. Watching sitcoms more from my, you know, from 20 years ago. I've kind of picked up watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Which is ironic because I never watched Everybody Loves Raymond when it was actually on TV. But the reruns I've started watching, hilarious. Sometimes it gets too uncomfortable, right? Sometimes when the family is uh it, it just gets really awkward and like my family often makes fun of me. I don't like watching things when they're super awkward, when they're super cringy. For instance, uh, do you remember the movie again from about 20 years ago? Meet the parents like funny, hilarious movie. I can't watch it because it's so awkward and you're like no don't do that don't do that that's there's certain episodes of everybody loves raymond that are like that but other ones that are hilarious including last night's one that is one of their more well-known episodes where uh deborah and ray neither of them are willing to move the the suitcase from the stairs and it becomes this big marriage standoff for weeks on end about who's going to move the suitcase so funny but i was just kind of going around last night like oh, i got some time And what did I stumble upon? But really, one of the greatest movies out there of the last 30 years. Gosh, it might even be more than 30 years now. One of the greatest movies set right here in Chicago, The Fugitive. Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, The One-Armed Man, all of it. And I had like the last hour of the fugitive. And you know what I thought to myself when I came across that I am in. It's one of those movies that you can just watch and rewatch. Like what are those movies that when you're turning the channels and you see that it's on, you're like, I'm stopping. I've seen this so many times. This happened to me the other day. I stopped and I watched the last 40 minutes of tombstone for the second time in a week. I was like, Hey, uh, the end of tombstone I'm in. If, if I come across the last 30 minutes of a few good men. I'm watching that courtroom scene every time. I wouldn't sit and watch the whole movie, but I'll watch it again. Any of the Rockies, if they're on, they're staying on. There's a reason that these movies always show up because 
they know that we're going to stop and watch them. And the fugitive is one of them. So uh, along with my son, I watched like the last hour of the fugitive love that movie. And as you know, if this is a spoiler alert after 35 years, you've, you've had a chance to watch it. Um, it's Harrison Ford, um, Dr. Richard Kimball, right? He's been arrested for the murder of his wife, but he claims it was a one-armed man who killed his wife when he came home and he wrestled with him and then the guy got away. Well, Harrison Ford, there he's in a bus crash from the prison and he runs away and the whole movie becomes the manhunt for, for uh, Harrison Ford's character, Dr. Richard Kimball, while Dr. Kimball is trying to prove his innocence and prove uh, what happened to his wife. And it ends up in the end being his good friend, uh, Lentz, Dr. Lentz, uh, who did it, uh, the one-armed man and all of this stuff. And Tommy Lee Jones, who's the one chasing him, is awesome in this movie. And in the end, uh, he says to Dr. Richard Kimball, I know you didn't kill your wife. And uh, that's kind of how the movie ends, as as uh, you know, he's going to be set free. So. Why do I bring this movie up? The best movies, I think, they've got an arc of redemption to them, and they point us to the ultimate redemption. Like, that's what I thought about as I was watching The Fugitive last night. Harrison Ford, or Dr. Richard Kimball in in this case, in this movie, was proclaimed guilty. Everybody knew he was guilty. Everybody, for the whole movie, they still think he's guilty. And then the good news is at the end, he's proclaimed not guilty through his work, through finding what happened. There's a redemption arc. His character is redeemed. In the beginning, he's a murderer. In the end, uh, he's a vindicated man. Another movie I will watch every time it's on TV, Shawshank Redemption. In the beginning, Andy Dufresne is a murderer. By the end, he's a vindicated man. The Ark of Redemption. We like these types of stories where people go from wrongfully accused to vindicated and declared not guilty. And because this is where my mind goes, uh, It made me think of our redemption in Christ. Not even wrongfully accused, rightfully accused, guilty. Uh, The book of Romans says the wages of sin is death, that we deserve judgment. But that we have been set free. We have been redeemed, not because we solved the case, not because we were wrongfully accused, but because Jesus took the penalty upon himself. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate at Easter time for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This redemption arc being declared guilty, but then in Christ being declared redeemed, not guilty. And at the end of The Fugitive, you see the weight of the world go off of Dr. Richard Kimball's uh, 
kind of countenance. And the same thing happens to us as we realize out of no um, work of our own that we have been declared not guilty. And we have been given salvation that we do not deserve, forgiveness that we do not deserve, a free gift, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. And you see glimpses of it in these movies. But as we gather for worship this weekend, or as we open up our word, the word, we see it in its totality. We see it in its fullness. The good news of the redemption that we have been given through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. One of the things I like to do on the show here is to introduce you to um, good preachers, people I think who are worth listening to. Uh, one of the pe- preachers I like to listen to uh, is a guy at the Village Church down in Texas. His name is Matt Chandler. And I wanted to end our hour here playing a sermon from Matt Chandler, uh, a two and a half minutes of a sermon from Matt Chandler, because I think it's about something really important. It's about what do you do when you're when you know in your head what you're supposed to do? You know in your head what the truth is. You know in your head uh, you've been around Christianity enough to know uh, the right answers, or more more importantly for this, the right actions. I should do this. I should do this. But your heart's not in it. Your heart's not there. What do you do? Uh, in those moments. That's what Matt Chandler gets at here. Let's take a little bit of a listen as to what he says. What do you do when your mind is there, but your heart isn't? Like, what do you do when you know what sin is, you know what's right, you know what's wrong, you know what you need to be doing versus what you don't need to be doing, and your mind knows, but your heart isn't there yet. So you don't feel remorse over your sin, even though you know something is sin. Are you with me on this? What do you do when there's a gap between your head and your heart? Throughout the scriptures, there's this phrase, wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord isn't pleasant at all. In fact, in one of the most gut-wrenching Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 42, David is literally in a fight with himself. He screams, why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. So his mind knows, don't make a God of that. Put your hope in God. Put your trust in God. Bow down before God. Serve God. Walk with God. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, why aren't you buying into this? So how do you wait on the Lord if this is you? You position yourself under the waterfall of grace. And you wait while you walk in obedience. So one step at a time, one day at a time, asking for God to break your heart, asking for God to restore the joy of your salvation to you, asking God to make 
him your treasure. Asking God, being honest about where you are, whether that be the desert or the low part or struggle, and you wait. Why? Because they who wait on the Lord, he will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and no longer be weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Man, he talks about Psalm chapter 42. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. And this wrestling going on in Psalm 42. Basically, Chandler's like, sometimes you have to fake it until you make it, right? Sometimes you have to obey what you know you're supposed to do. Wait on the Lord. You position yourself under the waterfall of grace, he said, and you wait. While you walk in obedience, you wait. While you go one step at a time, one day at a time, begging God to break through, begging God to restore the joy of your salvation, asking him to birth something new, being honest with him about where you are. You wait for God to work. Because those who wait on the Lord, will he will renew their strength. They won't renew their own strength. He will renew their strength. They will run. They will not grow faint. So if that's you this morning or this afternoon, if that's you, going, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. If that's where you are at, then the answer, I love that imagery that he uses, is to sit under the waterfall of grace and wait. It is to cry out to God. I I long to know you more deeply. I long to quote unquote feel you. I want to know you like I used to know you. And as we are crying out, see, so many of us, we want our feelings to drive our actions. We do this in marriage. I don't feel in love, so therefore I'm not going to treat my spouse well. We do this in going to church. I don't feel like I like my church or I don't feel close to God, so I'm not going to go to church. Feelings drive our actions, and I think the point here is sometimes our actions drive our feelings. As you wait on the Lord, as you cry out to Him, as you 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 pray those prayers of, God, I need you to work in my life. I need you to light the flame or whatever imagery you want to use. You still walk in obedience. I'm still going to read my Bible, even though I'm not feeling it. I'm still going to pray, even though I'm not feeling it. I'm still going to go to church. I'm still going to love my neighbor. I'm still, I'm still going to abstain from sin and run away from sin. And sometimes obedience becomes the doorway to quote unquote feeling it. So if that's where you are today, You know it in your head, but you don't feel it in your heart. Still obey, still walk in him, 
wait on the Lord and be honest with him about where you're at. God, I need you to do a work in me right now. I'm waiting on you. I'm downcast. I'm hurting. I'm distant. I'm whatever. And I'll continue to obey you. I will continue to follow you. But God, will you do something in my life? Just a good word for Matt Chandler, because I think that's something that we all struggle with at times in our life. What do we do when we're not, quote unquote, feeling it? What is it that you're going to do this weekend? Obviously, we said earlier, we hope you go to church. And as we just talked about, engage in it while you are there. But what else? What else are you going to do? The weather's kind of nice outside, if not a little wet and rainy. I got for Christmas, uh, I picked out a gift from my family and I got a, a mini like wood chipper. So it only takes like small sticks. It doesn't, you can't like take huge logs through this thing, but it's like, it's like a mini wood chipper. And I've had this wood pile kind of in my yard uh, and I'm kind of going through it and I'm cutting things down and it is so cathartic. I am shocked about how enjoyable it is to feed small pieces of of wood, to feed small sticks and branches through this mini wood chipper. It's awesome to just be able to do that. And so I'm going to look, if it's not raining, if it's not too wet outside this week, uh, this weekend, I'm going to wood chip. I'm going to do, because you know what? I have found that to be life-giving. I would encourage you this week, do something that's life-giving. It might be going out with friends, spending time with your kids, playing in the backyard. Uh, It might be going for a run. Whatever is life-giving for you, make sure you do that at some point this weekend. Do something that is life-giving. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about doubt. Over Christianity Today, We read this article, doubt is a ladder, not a home. Doubt is a ladder, not a home. This author, uh, his name is Brad East. He said, churches should welcome questions that doesn't require embracing perpetual doubt. And he's talking, I think he, he sets this up in an interesting way. He asks, what are the struggles to being a Christian in various parts of the world and in various situations? So he talks about historical situations. If you were... In Jerusalem in the first century, there were certain things that were struggles that are not struggles for us today. If you're a nun living in a convent, there are certain things. You're not dealing with marriage and other things. But he says this, if I were to put this question about what makes Christianity hard, if I were to put this question to my friends or my college students in America today, I think I know what they would say, he writes. What makes Christianity hard in our time and place is doubt. Doubt about God's existence, about the resurrection of Jesus, about miracles, about angels, demons, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, about the biblical text or the history behind them or the church that gives them to us, about the credibility of all of all of the above, he writes. And all that doubt perches on the precipice of a yawning chasm between back then and here and now. Uh, Oppression and slavery and superstition versus liberty and human rights and science. Should we really accept unquestioningly the faith of our ancestors when we tend to think we are so much better than them in so many ways? Then he makes an interesting point. He says, 
I'm not describing atheists, apostates, or ex-evangelicals here. This is how many ordinary Christians feel. Or at least it's the water they swim in, the intrusive thought in the back of their mind, the semi-conscious source of inertia they feel when the alarm blares on a Sunday morning. American Christians face no coliseum, that being where the Christians were fed to the lions. But this emotional and intellectual pressure is very real and doubts add up. And it doesn't help, he says, that doubts are in vogue. Doubt is sexy and not only in the wider culture. I cannot count the number of times I've been told by a pastor or a Christian professor that doubt is a sign of spiritual matur- maturity, that the presence of doubt is a sign of a healthy theological mind. The pro-doubt crowd gets two important things entirely right, he says. First, they want to space to ask honest questions. Second, they want to remove the stigma of doubt. So he does say there's a healthiness to doubt that we need to, when we're talking about cosmic eternal things, when we're talking about almighty God, we need to have the ability to say, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. I don't know how all of this works. I don't get it. I don't understand. Like That's okay. And then to remove the stigma of doubt. You're a bad Christian if you have any doubts. You're on the road to apostasy if you have any doubts. No, no, we need places to wrestle. And if all truth is God's truth and we believe God is who he says he is, then in the end of this, we should be left with a stronger faith. So there are good aspects to doubt, to cultures that allow for doubt. But then he says, What do the pro-doubt folks go wrong? Where do they go wrong? And he wants to make a list of four ways. Let me run through them. First, pro-doubters universalize a particular experience. It's true that doubt is not a fake problem easily solved by a little spiritual bootstrapping, but is believing in an invisible God or the uh, virgin birth of Jesus what makes Christianity hard for everyone everywhere and always? Read enough of Christian literature and praise of doubt, and that's the impression you'll get. But if you look at church history, it's not the case. We don't have to have doubts. We don't need to say that you're a bad Christian if you don't have doubts. We go too far the other way. That's the first one. He says, second, pro-doubters tend to describe doubt not just as universal, as a universal challenge, but as a necessary feature of a mature faith. He says that doesn't have to be true. That we see people who don't seem to doubt. The doubt does not necessarily make you mature. We've romanticized doubt, like he said earlier. And then you start to feel if you don't have doubts, then you're not a deep thinker. That's not true. Just because some doubt doesn't mean all must doubt. He says third Uh, pro-doubters go too far in making doubt a virtue. Doubt is not a sin, but that doesn't mean it's desirable. Doesn't mean it's desirable. At best, doubt is a ladder to climb, but ladders aren't ends in themselves. We use them to get somewhere. And that's to deeper faith. And finally, pro-doubters 
mischaracterize the nature of questions. Which questions are not the same as doubts. Thomas Aquinas asked thousands of questions in his short life. Augustine's confessions alone contain more than 700 questions. What else is a catechism but questions followed by answers? Doubt begins with a loss of trust or credibility, but questions do not. He says, for example, my children ask me questions every day, not because they doubt me, but because they trust me. There's a difference between doubt and questions. What makes Christianity hard is faith. Far too many Christians raised in the church think faith means mental or emotional certainty. And that doesn't need to be the case, but we all don't need to doubt. Let me read how he closes this. This is Brad East. He's at Abilene Christian University. He says, doubt can be part of this struggle. The struggle is real, lifelong, and common to us all. The struggle, however, is not the point. The point is where we are going. The point is whom we are following. The point is that the cross is the final, is not the final destination. Death is not the end. We are not doomed to wrestle and suffer and wonder forever. When we walk out of the tomb, we will leave it all behind. Like grave clothes, whatever doubts once bedeviled us will lie piled on the floor. Free of every burden, we will walk into life. Doubt is a ladder. It's not the end goal. It is not to be esteemed. It is to be spoken of honestly. We ask questions for the purpose. Great word there. Again, I really appreciate that about doubt. Part of my job here, I believe, is to motivate you, to give you inspiration. Sometimes it's pastors, like we listened to earlier, Matt Chandler, or we listened to John Piper the other day or others. Sometimes it's other people. And I found this motivational, inspirational college commencement speech by Chadwick Boseman. Who's Chadwick Boseman? Phenomenal actor. Uh, Black Panther, right? Chadwick, amongst other roles. But Chadwick Boseman sadly passed away of cancer. Many people didn't know he had cancer. And, uh, but he did, and he, he passed away at a young age. And it really got people looking back at some of the things he said and, and, and some of the inspiration he gave. It's almost as if he knew that his life was short. So I want you to listen to this. This is Chadwick Boseman uh, giving words of inspiration to college graduates about finding their purpose in life. This is about two and a half minutes long. You'll be blessed. By, listen to it, by listening to it. Let's listen to Chadwick Boseman. Sometimes you need to get knocked down before you can really figure out what your, what your fight is and how you need to fight it. Sometimes you need to feel the pain and sting of defeat to activate the real passion and purpose that God predestined inside of you. God says in Jeremiah... I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Hear me well on this day. This day when you have reached the hilltop and you are deciding on on next jobs, next steps, careers, further education. You would rather find purpose than a job or a career. Purpose crosses disciplines. 
purpose is an essential element of you. It is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. When God has something for you, it doesn't matter who stands against it. If it's meant for you, God will move someone that's holding you back away from a door and put someone there who will open it for you. I don't know what your future is, but if you are willing to take the harder way, the more complicated one, the one with more failures at first than successes, the one that has ultimately proven to have more meaning, more victory, more glory, then you will not regret it. Press on with pride and press on with purpose and appreciate what God has brought you through. Sometimes you need to feel the pain and sting of defeat to activate the real passion and purpose that God has predestined inside of you. Think about that for a second. Sometimes it's defeat that brings that out. He goes to the book of Jeremiah. I know the plans to prosper you and not to harm you that you have plans. Remember, he's speaking to college graduates here. They're looking out, he says, at the hilltop, thinking about your jobs or your next steps. They are at the precipice of life. They're about to enter into adulthood. And he says this, find purpose rather than a job or a career. The purpose crosses disciplines and is an essential element of who you are. What is the reason you've been placed on this planet? Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you're here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember your purpose, he says. This is a great word, an unbelievable word, to specifically be saying to college graduates, you have a purpose. You have a purpose. More than a career. See, we leave college and we go, what am I going to do to make money? What's my job? And, and then that, that lasts for the rest of our lives. We lose purpose and we instead go, what's my employment? And they could be the same thing. They could be different things. But all of us have a purpose here on in, in this world. When God has something for you, it doesn't matter, he says, who stands against it. What is meant for you? And so he says, press on with pride and press on with purpose. Keep going and appreciate what God has brought you through. Push on. And so friends, as we close today's show, the question for you is what's your purpose? Not necessarily what's your employment. But what's your purpose? As Christians, we have some universal purposes. The most obvious is we call it the Great Commission. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the very ends of the earth. 
our purpose as Christ followers is to go and make disciples. How else would we describe our purpose as Christ followers? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's your purpose, to be Christ's ambassadors. That is your purpose. How would you define your purpose? But then I do believe that God has given us specific purposes. Some of you have a passion for, um, you know, the homeless, say. And it might not be your job, but that's a purpose. That's a passion that God has birthed in you. That no matter what you're doing, you're always going to serve in some way like that, right? Like that's just an example. But do you see how our purpose runs more deeply than our profession. It allows us to go through hard times. It allows us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So as we close today, what do you believe your purpose is? Ask the bigger questions of life. What is your purpose? What is your purpose? What is your mission in life? It might again play into your job or it might not. But write even this weekend, write in a journal, the purpose of my life is, and then fill that out. It's to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and soul. It's to love my neighbor. It's to love and serve my spouse and my family. Be creative. What does God put on your soul that you believe this is why I'm on this earth? This is what I'm on this earth to do in this moment. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? Let that drive you. Let that be the fuel for your life. Run the race, friends, marked out for you. Eyes focused on Jesus with perseverance. What is your purpose? Good words there from Chadwick Boseman. I hope that you have a great week. A great weekend, I should say. Enjoy it. Have some fun. Go to church and then join us again on Monday from four until six. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.